It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. The Telegraph. The Telegraph. Podcasts. I'm David Knowles, and this is Ukraine the latest. Today, we analyse the latest updates from Ukraine and ask what the fall of Luhansk means for Ukraine and Russia. This hideous and barbaric venture of Vladimir Putin must end in failure. Nobody's going to break us. We're strong. We're Ukrainians. Every weekday afternoon, we sit down with leading journalists from the Telegraph's London newsroom and our teams reporting on the ground to bring you the latest news and analysis on the war in Ukraine. It's Tuesday, the 5th of July, day 132. And today, I'm joined by The Telegraph's defence and security editor, Dominic Nichols, senior foreign correspondent, Roland Oliphant, and assistant comment editor, Francis Dernley. I started by asking Dom and Francis for news from the front lines across Ukraine. Yeah, hi, David. Hi, everybody. I apologise if there's any background noise. I'm at a, a conference today, the Allied Rapid Reaction Corps on uh, multi-domain operations in the urban environment. So uh, if you hear a lot of noise, apologies, uh, that's it. But uh, updates from the last 24 hours, kind of big to small, really. So Sweden and Finland have formally signed the NATO accession protocol. Uh, this is the, the next formal step, well, the last formal step on their part to join NATO. Uh, What it means is that they are now formally able to join NATO meetings. They'll have access to more intelligence, but they're not yet covered by the Article 5 uh, mutual defence clause. However, you may remember that Britain uh, extended a, a, a sort of bilateral defence agreement with the two countries some months ago. So, so it's just only a, a formal step now, I think, for Sweden and Finland join NATO. Uh, separately, uh, there's a lot of data, mainly from NASA, very interestingly, that there's a huge amount of uh, fire, probably artillery fire, almost certainly artillery fire, um, behind the Russian lines in the Kazan area and that that's particularly interesting we've been we've been looking at it uh, quite recently and saying that there's this sort of uh, this um uprising if you like this is um uh, led by the, the population in Kherson against Russian rule. We've also seen that that, Russia, that Ukraine have been able to knit together a number of small counteroffensives in the in the area. So Kherson seems to be uh, possibly the front to watch in the next few days. <clears throat> and it comes as 
as Russia has said that that uh, one of the their FSB, their security services, an official in, in the FSB who, who used to be the sort of second in command in Kaliningrad, he's now taken over the government of the of the sort of Moscow um, Occupy Kherson region. And in a statement, they say uh, Ukraine is forever in the past for the Kherson region. Russia is here forever. So uh, they're pretty pretty unequivocal. They're, they're they're trying to turn Kherson into this sort of into part of greater greater Russia, and we will see. Uh, we've seen in the past they've tried to do a, a sort of a, a vote uh, um, on uh, on sovereignty there, which which has come to nothing yet. But but they are very uh, very clear that they're still pushing for um, uh, to solidify their their um, their rule, if you like, in in Kherson. Um, elsewhere, in the, in response to the fall of Lysychansk yesterday, so Putin, we saw this another excruciating video of Putin and Shoigu at the table discussing. Discussing illicit chance, and um, and Putin was saying that the fighters that have been that have been conducting the operation there, which he said mainly came from the the central and southern groupings, they can rest. However, the other the other groupings must continue their um, their advance. So the east and west groupings. Now, interestingly, um, him saying, and this is a quote from Putin, they, they so the east and west groupings quote must carry out their tasks according to the previously approved plans, according to the single scheme, and I hope that everything will happen in their directions in the same way it has happened in Luhansk. So interestingly, so the previously approved plans and this single scheme that we've been uh, witness to seems to be smash the place up with artillery and then and then try and claim some sort of victory afterwards. So if that's what we can expect from the east and west groupings who are in the north and the south of and the northern and southern um, flanks, so around Kharkiv to the north and Kherson in the south, um, if that's if that's what what's in store for the next phase, um, I think two things. Firstly, it shows that Russia is just just out of ideas. It's got no great, great scheme here, no great plan, no great sort of initiative. No, um, they've not been able to respond to anything on the on the ground and, and come up with a better way of trying to achieve their objectives. They're just happy to to grind on remorselessly, throwing throwing their young young men into the into the fray. They don't care for civilian infrastructure or civilian deaths. They're just just content to grind on. Um, but yeah, very unequivocal statement there from Putin saying that he's he's content that what happened in Luhansk should should happen elsewhere. Um, so not not great news. But on the other hand, Ukraine, knowing what your enemy is going to do is is half the battle. So if that is what Russia are declaring and that's what they've done so far, so there's no reason to suggest that they're suddenly going to uh, develop some new operational art. Then that in itself gives Ukraine um, an answer as to what what to expect, and therefore they should be able to plan accordingly. But I'll just take a pause there. Thank you very much, Dom. Um, Francis, I know you've got quite a few updates. Um, just some things we'd like to cover. Um, Roland Oliphant, however, would you like to just add anything to what what Dom's been saying? I know you've been writing a lot about this recently. Uh, Dom's basically right about how the Russians are are playing this. It's um, it's a huge amount of artillery um, meant to compensate for. Um, you know, not especially effective um, infantry operating on their own. But it, look, it, it's working. Um, I, I don't think we should be complacent about this. People, um, you know, including in Western capitals, will be watching what happened in Lysychansk. OK, it's a tactical retreat. Um, OK, the Ukrainians avoided encirclement. OK, it's taken two, three months for the for the Russians to affect this. But it's working um, and they're still on the march. Unless the Ukrainians, backed by the West, can find a way to... Um, to counter that artillery fire, I mean, I, I assume by interdicting um, the logistics chain for the ammunition, probably, um, we're likely to see a similar kind of thing um, in Donetsk. And, and I think looking at the mood music from, from the Kremlin, from Moscow, the Russians seem to think, well, look, 
time is probably on our side. Um, and if we keep going, maybe we're going to see, um, you know, th this kind of confidence on the side of the West begin to crumble, the unity begin to crumble. Um, so I think I think that is the long term game plan. Thanks, Ronan. We'll get on to your analysis in, in a few minutes, I'm sure. Um, Francis Sternley, can we pick up a couple of things that I think are important for our listeners to, to, to hear? Um, there's been some development in the information space. Facebook and other social media firms are going to face multi-billion pound fines if they fail to take down Kremlin disinformation under new laws. Can you tell us about this? Where, where is this? What's happening? Yes, well, um, there's, there's considerable talk about this um, in, since the war began here in the UK in relation to the online safety bill. And we now understand uh, that there will be a new legal duty to proactively prevent and remove attempts by Russia and other hostile states to use websites like Facebook, Instagram, Twitter and TikTok to mislead the public or interfere in the UK's political system. As I say, this is part of the government's plan to overhaul uh, security laws and and stop foreign interference. It would it would be uh, there would be a criminal offence of with a maximum jail sentence of fourteen years. And of course, this comes following Facebook and Twitter having already suspended dozens of accounts disseminating false information during the war. Um, I mentioned the online safety bill. Um, this is a controversial piece of legislation here in the UK, but just for the benefit of our international listeners, this is a, an attempt effectively by the government to, to try and um, control information online and provide, um, they would argue, more um, security. And this is now going to be one of the sort of central pillars of that alongside child abuse, terrorism, revenge porn, fraud, um, promotion of people smuggling and sexual exploitation. As I say, not without controversy, but that's that's sort of a separate point. But yes, a, a, a very interesting, um, very interesting story uh, and one that will no doubt have um, uh, sort of be a cause of, 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 of considerable debate because, of course, at what point does this in some way... Um, uh, suppress elements of, of, of free speech you know to what extent can one define somebody who perhaps expresses a pro-Russian view as being an agent of Russia so it's obviously very difficult um, and, I, and as I say I'm sure there'll be considerable debate about that just one other area um, that you allude to in, in the information space. Um, we understand that there's uh, a, a, some um, regular Twitter users will be familiar with a celebrity Ukraine volunteer soldier account. Um, and uh, that has been exposed as a fraud by Internet sleuths at Bellingcat and others. Um, so this, this Canadian-Ukrainian volunteer was um, sort of a rather dashing fellow, wowing his uh, thousands of Twitter followers with with tales of his daring missions into enemy territory, um, describing sort of quite vividly frontline action. Um, but uh, considerable research has been done into this uh, into this gentleman, and uh, it's been proven that it's actually a fraud. Um, and, uh, and and yes, at, at the height of his fame, he was publishing dozens of tweets a day to his uh, 120,000 followers. Um, and uh, as I say, it's, 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 it, disinformation is, is rife on, on both sides, um, obviously much more present in, you know, on the Russian side, I would argue. Um, but there's still obviously evidence, too, of people who are... Um, trying to claim things that they're not um, and uh, I'm not in any way insinuating that, that perhaps you know, <laughs> the Ukrainian government was in any way associated with this but it just speaks to the fact that, that you know that, that information is a valuable commodity on, on Twitter and, and there are those who are um, deceiving 
um, um, people as to what their their real intentions are. Um, but it's not surprised when, on as we've talked about many times on this podcast, uh, it, it, the information front, whether that be on social media or whether that be in mainstream news, is a major. Um, um, front in this war and one that no doubt we'll talk about later today when Roland talks about his analysis and, and the long-term strategy for the West and for Ukraine in the war. Thank you very much, Francis. Just one more thing I'd like to ask you. Um, oil and gas workers are on strike in Norway. Um, this escalates Europe's uh, natural gas crisis and, and it's also a week before a key pipeline with Russia is going to be shut for maintenance. Uh, so this sort of economic story is bubbling away in the background. Can you tell us a little bit more about this? Yes, this story hasn't received much coverage, but I think it's um, it, it, it's an interesting one. So, as you say, um, oil and gas workers are on strike in Norway. Um, this is uh, escalating the natural gas crisis a week before uh, one of the key Russian pipelines is due to shut for maintenance. Um, Norway, I should say, supplies about 20 to 25 percent of the EU and UK's natural gas demand. And so um, it's concerning because it suggests that there is a sort of lack of um you know european unity perhaps on this on this issue um and uh you know that i think they're they're one element that perhaps hasn't been discussed as much as it perhaps should have been within the european union is this question about certain sovereign nations providing energy support for others we've talked about that a lot in the military space but we haven't talked about it so much in the energy space and of course part of the reason for that is because whether it be germany or britain or france everybody is facing struggles in this area um but i think it's quite concerning and obviously this this plays more to moscow than it does to uh um to brussels berlin Paris or, or, or London when you have people who are striking and that will have you know a, a negative impact on, on on the energy economy so um, yes I think that, that perhaps this will cause some concern and there may well be need to be some emergency plans long term for what to do if this if this um, issue gets worse I mean I should just add on relation to this that, that obviously Germany has now moved into the second stage of its three-stage emergency gas plan um, uh, since Russia started slowing its supply. And I just, you know, to, to speak to the seriousness of this, if they enter the third stage, then that is rationing rationing of energy in Germany and that would have you know enormous economic um, ramifications contributing to job losses and and the like and so you know this is only the beginning of what could be a very very serious um, crisis later on particularly if Europe has a bad winter and that will be one that will have ramifications not only in you know ones that we that we feel at home but also have big impacts on the war which is something I no doubt we'll want to cover shortly when we discuss the long-term picture. Thank you very much, Francis. And yes, you're absolutely right. We'll definitely get on some of our business team, I think, later in the week to discuss what the, the near and far future looks like for European energy, because it's a key part of, I think, Moscow's long-term strategy in this, in this invasion. Um, Dom Nichols, I know you had some thoughts about some of the information um, news that Francis was relaying earlier. Would you like to come in and tell us it? Yeah, so it strikes a chord with a lot of what's being spoken about today. So I'm in the Science Museum in, in central London for the for um, NATO's Allied Rapid Reaction Corps Multi-Domain Operations in the Urban Environment Conference. And it's basically talking about how, how to fight in urban centres. So if we look at what Russia's done for uh, Mariupol, as well as many of the other, the other cities, they've just, they've just smashed the place up. They've treated it just as ground. So, so, so get rid of the in their views, in their eyes, the enemy. But that also means getting rid of all the all the infrastructure and the civilian population and then just being able to hold the ground. And the, and the argument is, 
Well, that's not that's not a very cute way of going about it, because if you look at what urban centres are, they're generally um, centres of political power or logistics or or media or or infrastructure, like a port or a rail hub, for example. So if you just go in there, if you have to take it by smashing the place up, then you can't use it for the purpose you wanted to take it in the first place. So there's almost no point uh, in in trying to launch an operation. It's going to cost you dearly. If you can't then use the thing afterwards, it's um, it's a bit like the old the old phrase from Vietnam. We had to destroy the village to save it. It just doesn't make any sense. So the, the, a lot of this conference is talking about what what are urban environments, why are they important, and how do you how do you fight in them to preserve the reason you went in there in the first place. And one of the speakers is, is Colonel John Spencer, U.S. guy, who's the chair of urban warfare studies at the Modern War Institute, and he so he's a specialist in in um, in urban warfare, basically. And he said that uh, he's a civilian now, although he has a, a reservist um, commitment in the US, in California. But he was saying that at the start of the war in Ukraine, he started putting out some just some small small tweets about what the, the local population can do to resist and defend and, and help the help help save their, their country. And this and these were well received. Um, and so he put them all together in a, in a little sort of urban warfare resistors slash defenders handbook. And that was picked up by a publisher in Kiev and um, published hundreds of thousands of times and distributed to the population. And this is all very, very we, we've seen this, the kind of hedgehogs, the, the metal um, poles, the sort of three way pyramid type structures that you can uh, you can place across across a road to deny movement to, uh, well, certainly road vehicles and armored vehicles uh, as well. So lots of lots of little things that you can do. Um, and the conference is saying, well, in the future, if we're. You can't look at an urban environment just as a, as a sort of billiard table, blank piece of flat piece of ground. You know, the, the, the civilians have a massive vote and they are they are not part of the, the problem necessarily unless you unless you make it so. Um, but you have to operate in, in and amongst them. So if what's happening now in contemporary warfare is that the population through either through direct resistance in the in the, in the case of following you know, John Spencer's urban warfare handbook, for example, but also just uploading images on social media of of where as we've seen as you know, where the russians are and and here's an interesting photo of some uh, air defense systems outside my house and you can you can geolocate that and we know that ukraine have set up apps for for the population to send in information and, and film and what have you so if the civilians now are are part of the defense um so the, c- the civilians are defenders and censors that's 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 an interesting concept, an interesting development. Although you've got to think, well, how do you mobilise them? How do you train them? How do you organise them? And of course, you're then into the very difficult, thorny legal issues of, well, are they taking a legitimate role in military activity, and are therefore relinquishing under the Geneva Conventions, relinquishing their their protections as a civilian, and and are therefore open to um, military response from from the from the enemy are they legitimate targets for example so very interesting ideas about how does a population organize itself um, and resist on on mass scale particularly in the information environment with social media and and does that then mean that civilians are more drawn into the conflict and that therefore the infrastructure they're living and operating amongst is more of a target in and of itself so really interesting ideas about about what this information age means for um for warfare what urban environments mean for warfare and, and how the two two mesh together and we're seeing a lot of these issues playing out right in front of us in ukraine no one's got an answer yet and hence we see the, the horrendous sort of death and destruction that, that's playing out in front of us but but this this debate about what what role the civilian has in future warfare and future resistance if we're now talking that 
defense is not just the military activity it's the whole of society it's 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 your your societal resilience where do civilians sit in that and at what point do they relinquish their protections under the geneva convention it's an, an interesting point thank you very much dom for that um Roland, can I turn to you? You've written an absolutely fascinating piece of analysis for the Telegraph website. I'd recommend everybody goes to read it. Um, the, you make you make lots of points. Let, let's start here. You, you write, the tactical gain, this is Putin capturing Luhansk, has brought almost no strategic advantage. Can you talk to us a little bit about why that's the case? Why, why does capturing Luhansk um, have no strategic advantage for the Russians? Um it has some kind of, it has a political advantage because the russians um you know publicly they set out one of their war aims as the liberation of the luhansk and donetsk people's republic and now they can say in fact as vladimir putin has already said we've achieved that one limited aim now moving to the next one but the point of the battle of donbass at the beginning was meant to be this this grand encirclement that was going to surround and then wipe out ukraine's most formidable um, chunk of its army, um, the so-called Joint Forces Operation, which had been um, fighting uh, along the, the 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 old front line um, that had been there for eight years, um, and and it completely failed. I mean, first they first they tried this this huge thing coming out from Izium and 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 up in Zaporizhia region, then they tried a more limited offensive further in. In the end, they had to do a tiny, tiny little encirclement, which eventually bit off Severodonetsk and, and Lysychansk after. I mean, I've lost count of the number of weeks. I mean, we're talking about a battle that went on probably longer than than, than some of the battles of the Second World War. Um, so the, the end result of this is Ukraine is still in the fight. They haven't won the war. That's what we mean by saying there's no real strategic advantage here. And it doesn't really put the Russians any closer to winning the war. Um, that's, the, that's the main point. So the victory, um, is it Pyrrhic? Um, I think it's too early to tell because we don't really know um, how Russian losses stack up against um, their reserve to put things in. But it's um, it's certainly been costly. Thanks, Roland. You also wrote that the, the what happens next, the coming struggles for Sovietsky, Slavyansk, Bakhmut, Kramatorsk, are going to be just as difficult for the Russian army. Could you tell us a little bit about these places? Um, why will it be just as difficult? How, how are the Ukrainians preparing to defend? I mean... Um, First of all, I think I think everything Dom said about you know the urban environment as a battle space, um, which you know the technical aspects of that he knows much more about than me. But you know, that that is very much what we've seen the, these long drawn out battles in Ukraine in, in urban environments, Mariupol, horrendous destruction, um, Severodonetsk flattened by artillery, um, uh, Lysychansk um, basically relinquished by the Ukrainians in advance. You're going to see the same kind of thing in these in in places like Kramatorsk and Slavyansk. The Ukrainians have been expecting battles for Kramatorsk, Slavyansk, Bakhmut. Um, you know, for months, literally for months since since April, they've been saying, "Get the civilians out." We know that these that this place is going to look like Mariupol, um, and and they are going to going to fight to defend. Um, in similar ways. These are really important cities, by the way. So since Ukraine lost control of Donetsk, which is the big urban conglomeration, the big regional capital in 2014, um, this kind of, this stretch of towns along the highway north of that, so you've got places, you've got Kramatorsk, you've got um, Slavyansk, you've got um, a place called Druzhkivka, and then there's a parallel highway on the other side of a a ridge, um, and there you've got Bakhmut. These are the the major towns of Ukrainian-controlled um, Donetsk region. Um, so the Ukrainians are going to fight absolutely tooth and claw for it, and they have dug in. 
um, and we could see them dug me in when I was there um, back in May. Um, it, it is going to be a hell of a fight. Um, and as we've seen, um, as Don has quite rightly pointed out, um, the Russian approach is huge amounts of artillery um, uh, to push the Ukrainians back, and, and then they send in their, their infantry to occupy the ruins. Um, and I can't see any of that being any, any different this time. So turning to the Ukrainians, you write that Ukraine is, is starting to run out of time. Can you explain why? Yeah, so I mean, there's two ways of looking at the, at the, the Battle of Luhansk Oblast, which is now over. Um, one is that it was a successful Ukrainian holding action, that it, it tied down the Russian army for a very long time. It prevented them from deploying forces elsewhere, and that has bought time. It's bought time for these Western high Mars rocket launches to get in there. It, it's bought time for the Ukrainians to um, train new brigades. Um, when I was speaking to Sergei Gaidai, the... Um, the governor of Luhansk region back in May, um, he was saying, look, yeah, I know people are dying. We know people are dying up there. We know it's horrible, but we've got to hold it as long as possible because we need to buy time for the coming uh, counteroffensive, of which there was a lot of talk um, back in May. And that counteroffensive hasn't yet emerged. Um, will it emerge? I don't know. I, I have the feeling the Ukrainians have put a lot of their new, newly raised units straight into the front to kind of to hold back the Russians. So I'm not sure if these if these new brigades exist they may do um but look there's there's a much bigger battle going on of, of much more strategic importance and that's the one for for kind of public opinion in western capitals um i don't actually include london in this i think i think the the, the debate is pretty much over here um i think all sides of the house of commons all sides of society are pretty unanimous this is a war that ukraine must win i don't think that is just you know boris johnson just pushing things, um, you know, for, for, for cynical domestic reasons, although, you know, he may be exploiting it. I, I think that does reflect the consensus in the British establishment. Um, that's not the case in America. That is not the case in Washington, in, in Washington or Berlin or Paris. There are lots of people there. And you remember this, this um, opinion piece in the New York Times um, the other month, where people are saying, well, can the Ukrainians really win? I think they've got to be realistic. Uh, we can't really beat the Russians. They're probably going to have to give up some land. I think we should tell the Ukrainians that they can't win. Um, I don't think we should send them more, you know, more more rockets and missiles and weapons than than they need, and so on. This is a really serious issue for the Ukrainians, um, and it is what the Russians are banking on um, for winning this war. So, I think we're getting to the point where the Ukrainians need a. I mean, there's two there's two um, comparisons from history. There's Saratoga in the American War of Independence um, when the Americans defeated the Brits and that convinced the French, OK, we'll be backing a winning horse here. And that's that is why the French started sending um, the support to the Americans, which ultimately won that war. Um, and then the other the other comparison I would make is is Goose Green in the Falklands War, which was, um, you know, famously, infamously. Um, a battle that wasn't really militarily necessary, but which Margaret pa Thatcher pushed for because, you know, she needed a it was really politically important to get a victory. Um, and it cost a lot of men's lives and it was a bloody fight. Um, but if, if you look back at the history, um, despite it being, you know, probably not militarily necessary, it was probably crucial um, in, you know, convincing international opinion, convincing Washington. Um, and others that, look, the Brits can win the Falklands. Um, we're getting to the point where I think Ukraine needs something like that to, to convince those doubters. Well, thank you very much for that, Roland. That was extensive, I think, just what we needed. Um, just wondering, Dom and Francis, do you have questions for Roland as well? 
I've got more, but I, th- I thought I'd throw to you two. Well, I just wanted to echo something that, that, that Roland was, was, was saying, and I'm sure he'll have a, have a comment on it. Um, so we've got a piece going up tonight from All Souls historian Sir Hugh Strawn. And he argues that similarly, in a sense, that for the reasons that Roland was just talking about, the Ukraine is, is, is arguably running out of time. So essentially, the, his argument is that for all of these um, NATO commitments made at Madrid last week, this, this doesn't really help Ukraine. It's, it's good future proofing. Um, ensuring that this doesn't become a sort of third world war type situation or d- that, that doesn't um, give P- Putin the ammunition to invade um, other territories. But it doesn't assist the Ukrainian capacity to resist. So Finland and Sweden's acceptance to NATO doesn't really help in the short term, he argues. Um, he, he, he makes the point that, that sanctions aren't really working on Russia, perhaps in the way that we thought it would would cripple them in the short term, that they've been able to do certain things to the economy, some creative accounting that that has sort of shored up the ruble. Um, And um, yeah, he sort of talks about how Ukraine effectively is facing more severe economic problems than Russia. And, uh, and and saying that if Ukraine is defeated, there is actually no way back for it. If Russia faces defeat on the battlefield, um, as it already has, then as it's been shown, it can replenish its supplies and, 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 and come back. But a, a, a major defeat for Ukraine will be, you know, absolutely disastrous for the reasons that Roland was talking about, not only in terms of the support that's provided for Ukraine, um, but also... Uh, you know, it, 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 its its reserves arguably are are more limited. So uh, effectively, he says that NATO is commissioned is committed to an attritional stalemate in Ukraine, and if Ukraine wants to win, it has to do far more, and that will be obviously require more support in terms of military supplies, etc., to Ukraine long term. Um, that we are not currently seeing. So um, quite a sort of pessimistic piece as things stand, but one that I think echoes the political points that, that Roland is making, that, that Ukraine has more to lose by military defeats than Russia do. But perhaps looking at it more optimistically, as we were talking about on the podcast last week, the, the great unanswered question is whether an attritional war favours Ukraine or whether it favours Russia, um, whether the, 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 the Ukrainian morale, which continues to be high despite everything that they have faced, whether that will have um, a, a, a longer term beneficial impact for the Ukrainian forces. Um, as I say, there's the, the jury is out on that and there's considerable debate that we talked about um, last week. Sir Patrick Sanders, of course, made this point that for him, he was arguing that, that Russia tend to start wars badly and improve. So I think we can assume that that seems to be more of the British Army's view, that if we're to, if the West is to defeat Russia, it needs to be now rather than later. Um, and of course, also the analysis by Kissinger plays into this that we talked about last week as well, because from his perspective... Uh, he was saying that that, that if um, the West were able to effectively stop, um, and Ukraine, of course, were able to to, to, to stop um, Putin more or less in, uh, in in not taking any more territory than that that he has already acquired, um, then that would be considered a a victory for Ukraine and for the West. 
Um, and so obviously there'll be many people who would disagree with that. They say that it's far too risky to allow Putin to have any any military successes whatsoever um, because of the message that sends geopolitically around the world and also that he'll be able to spin to his people. Um, but, uh, you know, this is something that no doubt will be of continuing significance, particularly in the analysis in, in Washington and Paris, as they sort of say, well, perhaps that we, we, you know, the, 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 in order for there to be peace in Europe, there will need to be some sort of concessions given to Russia and that uh, we can spin um, him being stopped here um, and, and perhaps holding Crimea, D- D- Donetsk and Luhansk and that being um, uh, enough for, some, for, for a peace deal to be signed. So there's so much relevant to all this and that's before you even bring in the energy and the cost of living things I was talking earlier about Norway and um, obviously Norway aren't a member of the European Union but they have a very close relationship and sort of all of these interconnections that are having a big impact on the overall picture of the unity of Europe and so I'd say that this this period is really really crucial um, for defining how this um, is perceived and, and how much support Ukraine will be offered in, in the coming weeks and months, um, because certainly it will have, um, you know, a huge significance. And will we see that counterattack that Roland was alluding to um, uh, that the Ukrainians were talking about in May? Um, if we don't, then that, that may be a, 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 of, of severe consequences for, for, for Western unity on this issue. Thank you very much, Francis, for that. Dom and Roland, I don't know if you want to come in on that, but Roland, I just ask, could you just tell us a little bit about when was the first time you were in Luhansk and how long have you reported from there and what should our listeners know about the region and the people? Um, I was first in Luhansk region in 2014 um, during the the initial war. Um, Luhansk region, well... Um, like all of Donbass, like the Donetsk region, it is, it's heavily industrialized. Um, it's very poor. It's got a sense of, I mean, Luhansk region is poorer than Donetsk region. That's the first thing you notice. So, you know, in 2014, I was spending a lot of time in Donetsk region. I got, to, you know, got a lot of friends in Donetsk and, and so on. Um, and when you crossed the border, um, the kind of regional border, you, you saw things getting poorer and more desperate and, and, and kind of depressed. And I'm talking about you know, this is before the war. I mean, I remember one one time we went into this town called um, Pervomaisky, um, which is opposite Papasna. Basically, the, the the Russians and so-called separatists controlled that. The Ukrainians controlled Papasna. They were shelling each other back and forth. It was horrible. I remember riding in there and being, goodness me, <clears throat> this looks pretty grim. My, my driver from Donetsk was like, ah, I was always grim, this isn't the war. You know, it's just... Um, it's a pretty tough place, Um really all in all um the war has changed a lot obviously um the the, the eight years of war it was divided um there was a front line and there was kind of investment directed on the ukrainian side um in an effort to kind of win hearts and minds and things like that so so some of the roads were pretty good i started the war in 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 severodonetsk um this war i was there when when the invasion began um you know kind of had this kind of optimistic um, buzzy kind of quite nice feel to it um, at that point um, gone now obviously the only thing I'll offer if I, if I could jump in here briefly is that Roland's idea there that, that Ukraine need to provide 
a tactical win to show that they are capable to, to for their own domestic morale as well as to shore up international support, I think is, is really uh, interesting and pertinent. And Jack Watling, the, the senior fellow from RUSI, the Royal United Services Institute, big think tank here in London, he made the point earlier on in one of the, one of the sessions this morning, he was making that very point, and he said that he, in his view, the battle for Severodonetsk, which, as we've said before, conferred very very little tactical advantage to either side but he was suggesting that that was the battle that that ukraine had decided to fight for those reasons and they put a lot of um personnel a lot of equipment into that salient into that pocket in order to 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 try and achieve that uh, that victory over uh, of russia in that in that city now I think it's a little bit of both. I think there's um, far be it for me to <laughs> go toe to toe with Jack Watling on his analysis, but um, I think it's partly that, and it was partly the reasons that that, that we've been uh, describing elsewhere that it was very helpful to uh, to get Russia to expend its, its ammunition and material. So I'm just whispering because the next session started, and I'm I'm just trapped out here, obviously between the lifts and the loos. So um, you know, great, it's glorious, glorious stuff. Um, but yeah, so I think that point of Jack Watling that that battle that Roland described. Um, was run out in Severodonetsk. I think it was quite interesting. Um, more analysis required there, but but this this idea that something is required, something big is required quite soon from Ukraine, uh, is, uh, is is gaining ground. Um, I mean, I mean, looking looking at where this goes now, just quickly. I mean, there's a lot of talk about the 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 high Mars deliveries. Um, I've just been speaking to one of Ukraine's former defence ministers. Said great bit of kit. Um, not enough. Now you'll have seen over the past several days these these deep strikes against um, ammunition dumps, command centres deep in the Russian rear, which we we think have been um, carried out by these HIMARS units. The Ukrainians never actually say, you know, what has done what for for operational security reasons. Um, I think that that is what we're seeing is is this Ukrainian attempt to stop the Russian advance and and I think because they don't have enough western weapons to go toe to toe with the Russians they can't match them gun for gun what they seem to be doing is trying to throttle that um that logistical uh chain of of shells that is supplying the the Russian artillery machines so I mean we we think the Russians are firing off something like 20,000 rounds a day all right so you've got to bring in a lot um most of it by rail um so I think this is going to be the test over the next few months, right? Um, are the are the Russians forced to stop? Does does their advance in in Donetsk region uh, run into the sand because they're just not getting enough shells to the front to replicate what they did um, in in Luhansk region? And and if that works, then the Ukrainians have stopped the Russian advance. The next question is the counteroffensive, and that's a whole different ballpark. And we're talking about tanks and infantry tactics and 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 god knows what else to take the offensive is going to be a different thing well thank you very much dom nichols uh, roland oliphant and francis Sternley. i think we're probably towards the end of our time now so i just ask you for your final thoughts and what should our listeners uh, be thinking to looking for in the next few days well for me it's still the focus on on list chance it's still very very soon too soon after the fall of Lysychansk to to analyze it properly, no matter what Putin says. Um, I think keep an eye on on that. That will dictate what happens next. I think if the um, if the central and southern uh, groupings, the, the, the fighters that, that 
that Putin said was in that pocket. If they are given time to rest, that will be interesting. I think that is the, what they should do. Um, they need to regenerate. They need to build up their force again before they try and push west. But how long they will be given to rest is an interesting point. But also this focus on the others, so those in the north around Kharkiv and the Russian forces in the south around Kherson, this idea that, well, OK, guys, you, it's now over to you. You've got to do your bit. Um, that will be interesting to watch because don't forget that, that we think they've had a lot of their... Uh, prime equipment and fighters stripped out for the fight in the east so whether or not they're even able to push on in the north and south will be very interesting but but see where the where the russian forces push next i think will tell us a lot about the next phase of this war um i think that that is interesting i i'm i think it's this 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 battle for for public opinion i mean i think if the West wants to put its money where its mouth where its mouth is, and it actually wants Ukraine to win this, I mean, actually wants Ukraine to win this war, it needs to do a couple of things. One of them is massively expand its industrial production. It basically needs to outproduce Russia, and it needs to start funneling stuff to Ukraine. I mean, not kind of like you know, here's half a dozen French howitzers, here's uh, half a dozen American rocket launchers. It needs you know World War Two style um, factories working three shifts kind of thing because because that's it is a war of attrition that's what's going on if, if if we see the west do that that does mean they're serious if not they you know the russians are going to be watching that as well and they're going to think well the west is saying this but they're not actually um acting on it um that's one thing uh, the other thing i mean you know don't underestimate how how absolutely brutal this battle um these past few months have been for the ukrainian army um the ukrainians keep their casualty figures close to their their chest but you know they were talking about a hundred guys lost a day um you just had to kind of pass through the, the the field hospitals um back in may to to see what an artillery war does um and that that really worries me um about you know the, the number of guys who've been lost and, and and the impact on morale i still think ukrainian morale is 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 very very high um but i don't think we should underestimate just the huge amount of, of, of life lost um, and how that's going to impact things further down the line. Um, if I could just, on this question of what Roland was talking about around public perception and the, the, the need for victory, Roland gave two historical examples of where that victory was achieved and it arguably changed the course of two wars. I know we have a lot of American listeners and, of course, the, in the American Civil War, the South fought... Uh, relying on there to be some sort of decisive victory against the North that would eventually mean that Britain came in on their side and uh, and and they would, in the nutritional war, would eventually beat the North. They never achieved that victory. Um, Gettysburg was arguably the final nail of the coffin in 1863, and whilst the war went on for another two years... Um, they could never regain the strategic momentum, the, 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 the momentum geopolitically around the world, that, that the idea that the Confederacy was losing. Now, of course, I'm not comparing in any way the values of Ukraine with the values of the Confederacy, but I just talk about it, these are the risks here um, uh, for, for, for Ukraine, that if you don't get that victory, um, then, then it can have you know, severe ramifications, particularly if they are reliant on it. And we don't know the scale of which they are reliant on it at this present moment. Um, but I just wanted to, to, to end with... The Ukrainian prime minister um, commented on Monday that the estimated cost of rebuilding Ukraine at present, and of course the war is not yet over, is $750 billion. 
And President Zelensky in his nightly address commented on this and said um, that, you know, this this quote, this is Russia's attack on everything that is of value to you and me. Therefore, the reconstruction of Ukraine is not just a local project, not a project of one nation, but a joint task of the entire democratic world. And I just wanted to end by um, we, we wrote a, a leader yesterday saying that how, you know, whenever this war ends, who's going to pay for this? Is it going to be Western taxpayers? Is it going to be um, a Marshall Plan style um, where the United States particularly invests heavy amounts of money, gives heavy amounts of money to, in order to rebuild this country? Or, as we argued for in this leader, should this be the responsibility of, 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 of the Russian state and Russian assets that were frozen by sanctions? So interestingly, Canada has just passed a law giving its government the right to confiscate and sell seized Russian assets. And um, perhaps we should be more seriously thinking in the West about doing the same here, here in Europe, about using all of those billions of pounds um, that have been frozen of Russian wealth in, in putting it into a fund that will mean that when this war is finally over, that there will be a lot of money there um, from the Russians themselves that will be paying for the damage that they have wrought on, on an innocent country. Ukraine The Latest is an original podcast from The Telegraph. To stay on top of all of our Ukraine news, analysis and dispatches from the ground, subscribe to The Telegraph. You can get your first 30 days completely free at telegraph.co.uk forward slash audio. You can listen to this conversation live at 1pm each weekday on Twitter Spaces. Follow The Telegraph on Twitter so you don't miss it. If you enjoyed this podcast, please consider following Ukraine The Latest on your preferred podcast app and leave a review as it helps others find the show. You can also get in touch directly with us by emailing podcasts at telegraph.co.uk. We do read every message. Ukraine The Latest is produced by Louisa Wells and Giles Gear. And today on Twitter, Sophie Coe. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. This is Roundabout Season 2, and we're back to share more stories from the road and the memories made along the way. We're talking rest stops. If we're stopping to get gas, you will be timed. <laughs> <laughs> you will be right Misguided plans. I grew up in the city, so I have, like, you know, a healthy fear of real extreme darkness. <laughs> this was, like, wilderness. A lot of laughs. Y'all weird, but you, yeah, you, you were different. Like, you were real different, bro. I can't really put my finger on it. And so much more. Just goes to show that unexpected yeah. things sometimes are the best when it comes to a road trip. Roundabout Season 2, presented by Nissan, is live now with new episodes rolling out every Thursday. Listen and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Acast helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. Acast.com.